Well, hey everyone, um, I'm Janet. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Really happy to be here. And I was thinking that since um, the holidays are upon us and you know that uncle that no one really likes or that sister we don't get along with and only see once a year, we'll be seeing this week. Um, I figured it is a good time to talk about resentments. Um, so we go through it when we do chapter five of the big book, but I wanted to do a little deep dive with um, stuff from the big book and stuff from some other sources. Since we are not affiliated with um, Overeaters Anonymous or any 12-step program, we are free to bring in outside sources. Um, we don't have any traditions, therefore we're not breaking any traditions. Um, actually, we do have a tradition and that is to firmly believe that the age of miracles is still with us and that God still launches search and rescue missions for us addicts. I guess that would be our mission and our tradition. So, um, but we do love the big book. So page 66 of our big book says that resentments are fatal. Like fatal means like leading to our demise. Why? says, because they cut us off from the sunlight of the spirit. So imagine a plant being cut off from the sunlight, it would die. And they're saying that's what happens, at least to our souls. Um, and it then tells us that if we stay in resentment, we're going to pick up. So the big book tells us how to get rid of resentments. And again, even though we cover this chapter, this topic, when we do the chapter, how it works, I was into some alliteration when I wrote this talk. And so I thought I would share some random remarks on resolving resentments. How's that? Um, and entering into a state of forgiveness. It's like Dorothy when she goes from black and white to color, you know, totally different existence. We can go from resentment into the sunlight of the spirit and forgiveness. So how do we as addicts do it? It's how normal people do it. I have no clue, um, but this is for us. I've gone through 10 points that I've mashed together, mainly from the big book and a book called The Way to Power and Poise by E. Stanley Jones, whose work was studied by the founders of AA and I'm clearly incorporated into the big book. So number one, we look at why we're angry. Okay, that sounds basic. I mean, we all do those check marks, right? To see what affected us. And that's generally the easiest column to fill out on our resentment sheet. And for anyone who's new, a resentment sheet generally has who I resent, why, what it affects, and what's my part. Um, so it deserves some thought as to say why we're angry instead of just checking off self-esteem, personal relationships, because really the basis of most of our resentments, according to E. Stanley Jones, is a touchy, unsurrendered self. The fact that I have a resentment shows that there's a self, that myself is hypersensitive because I have not fully surrendered to God. When surrendered to the will of God, we throw off resentments as healthy skin throws off disease germs. Unless there's a cut in the skin, the disease germs don't get in. So I started thinking about this, like vis-a-vis -vis the third column and the resentment inventory. Like we say, I'm angry because it affects my self-esteem. That may be because someone said something unkind to me or about me. 
well, then I haven't surrendered to God my demand, not my desire. I can have a desire, my demand that others think about me and talk about me in a certain way. If I had, wouldn't bother me so much what other people said or thought about me. I used to be so hypersensitive. I remember back when I was a kid, if someone said they didn't like the shirt I was wearing, it would put me into a depression all day. Um, you know, that's because I was really making an idol out of what other people said about me. And if I make an idol out of what other people think or say, I'm putting something or someone else ahead of God. Or let's say we check off the box ambitions, right? Mm -hmm. If I had fully surrendered my career to God, for example, it wouldn't bother me so much if someone else got that promotion I wanted. I would know that, like it says on page 63 of the big book, we had a new employer. And notice they do employer with a capital E. He provides all I need if, so here's the condition to get all I need from my heavenly employer. If I stay close to him and perform his work well. Um, years back, I worked in a law firm and they wanted me to join an organization that went against my values. I didn't feel comfortable with it. Um, so they actually fired me. Um, and I got another job um, working management in the courthouse, but it paid like, it paid $15,000 a year less. And I thought, okay, but I'm doing what my employer with a capital E wants. He did not want me in that organization. And right around that time, my parents said to me, you know, as part of our estate planning, we're going to give you $18,000 a year, like every year, um, which more than made up for it. Um, I think Again, if I'm doing the right thing, that unties God's hands so he can act. Remember, step four comes after step three, always. Um, I have the courage to do this painful moral inventory because by this point, I believe in a God who is all loving, all powerful, who cares about me and who I know has my back. So I don't have to worry that I'm not going to make enough money in this new job. I'm surrendered to God. God's got my back. Um, so it's the same with my personal relationships, sex relationships, and security. Basically, if something or someone threatens them, I look to see where I haven't fully surrendered my right to something. Um, now, remember, I qualified this by saying, the basis of most of our resentments is an unsurrendered violence committed against her. Let's be clear. I would never tell that person the problem is lack of surrender. Okay. If, if someone is uh, beating us, we're supposed to get out. Um, okay. Number two, realize that the other person is perhaps spiritually sick. I really hesitate saying this because I think this line is so overused. Um, I could probably label Mother Teresa as spiritually sick if I didn't like something she said. But what about the times when someone isn't as spiritually developed as I would like? Um, first, it's always helpful to look at their story, 
their upbringing. So for instance, my dad yelled a lot when I was a kid um, and he worked a crazy amount of hours. And yeah, he worked at least two jobs. You know, he was a teacher and then he tutored. And if something bothered him, he yelled and he yelled a lot. Um, but if I dig really deep and like walk a mile in his moccasins, as they say, I see that my dad was physically abused as a child and his own dad didn't have a job. So working two jobs and yelling was major progress. And in God's eyes, my father might actually be a saint. So it always helps me to look at the other person's story. Um, it's helpful to remember there's a little bit of good in the worst of us and a little bit of bad, or in my case, a whole lot of bad in the best of us. Um, here's a prayer that I find helpful. Lord, this person is an infinitely precious child of yours and a spiritually developing person with flaws just like me. Please help me to relate to them with both truths in mind so that I can always love, always forgive, and if necessary, set appropriate boundaries. Um, since we're talking about realizing the other person is perhaps spiritually sick or spiritually developing, again, I think I, I want to stress that forgiveness does not mean I have to be in relationship with someone who is so spiritually sick that they're abusive on whatever level. If someone is abusive to me, I need to forgive them on the basis that they're spiritually sick. Just like if I was mad that a crippled person couldn't walk, I shouldn't be expecting them to walk. They're crippled. If someone is spiritually sick, I shouldn't expect them to behave like a spiritually healthy person, but I don't need to be in relationship. Number three, we don't stop with saying that the other person is spiritually sick. We don't end there. I've heard people say, my part is I have to realize that she's spiritually sick and I need to pray for her. No, big book does not say that. Um, it's so easy for me to be up on a mountaintop looking down on that poor spiritually sick person who needs my prayer. And truth be told, how often do we really pray for these people anyway? We don't sit down for an hour and pray for them. We mumble something and say, I just said, God, please help this poor spiritually sick person. And we think that makes us spiritual. Um, we need to do more. And the book says, we resolutely look for our part in each and every resentment. And again, our part is never just, I need to pray for a spiritually sick person. Um, I was once advised by my sponsor to replace the term spiritually sick with human, just like me, or spiritually developing. Otherwise, again, it's too easy for me to get on a spiritual hilltop. But I have to really dig deep and see my part. If someone was nasty to me, was I nasty to her first? If one of my kids was undisciplined, is my part that I was selfish and lazy in teaching them the right things? Um, if I'm angry at how other people are acting, why did you invite Uncle Ned to Christmas dinner? You know, why are you hanging out with that person? Um, is my part that I think I have a right to control what other people think, what they do, or what they say? I have found that most of my resentments 
just melt away when I see my part. And for me, my part is often that I want other people to think, say, or do what I want them to. Um, this Christmas, one of my kids is not here, um, was supposed to be here. And last minute, you know, kind of pulled this stunt. And it's like, yeah, if you won't let me do this, then I'm not coming. And, you know, so we said, you know, basically, sorry, we'll miss you, but yeah, you're not going to. Okay. And I realized like I was sad, but I didn't have a resentment. Whereas years before, if this child looked at me cross-eyed, I would get angry, but I didn't have a resentment because I don't have a demand that people act a certain way to fulfill my goal of having, you know, a Norman Rockwell Christmas where all my kids are here, not entitled to that. Um, so she, my child has the right to do whatever she wants to do. Um, and that makes life a whole lot easier. Um, I think a lot of times we, my part is also, I made what other people think or say about me any of my business, and it isn't. What anyone says about me or thinks about me, not my business. Um, so many of my resentments will go away when I realize things aren't my business. And the way I look at it is this, like I'm swimming in one of those lap pools that you know has those like ropes that um, divides the lanes. And I'm swimming toward God. And I can't swim into another person's lane and I can't let another person swim in my lane. So what other people are thinking, doing, their plans, and even the future is in another lane. And other people's stuff that they try to put on me and make me responsible for, that goes in another lane also. So let's say we do all this, right? We pray, we see they're spiritually sick or spiritually developing. We see our part but we still have the resentment um, or there are other things we can do. And there are. Number four, we have to make up our minds that in this world, we are not going to escape injustice and pain. The big book talks about certain trials and low spots, certain trials and low spots, and tells us what to do when, not if, trouble comes. The big book doesn't say we'll never have troubles. So if we believe that because we've given our life to God, our lives going forward will be pain-free, we will be guilty of our old enemy expectations. Um, the big book tells us that when trouble comes, we cheerfully capitalize on them as a chance for God to show his omnipotence. That means we continue to do the right thing, trust God, and wait for the miracles. Um, about a year or so ago, my daughter was home from college on break and she was going to meet up with her old boyfriend. I did not like this boy one single bit. Didn't like him when she was dating him. Didn't want her to start getting involved with him again. Um, but I kept my mouth shut, right? Who she spends her time with is in a different lane. And then at the end, she said, you know what? I'm not going to see him. I'm going to go out with my best friend instead. Now, did keeping my mouth shut result in that? I don't know. But I do believe that 
if I'm angry or controlling and trying to take matters into my own hands, that ties God's hands. Number five, we can pray for those who harm us. East Stanley Jones says that by praying for those who wrong us, I love this, the resentment is sterilized by the antiseptic of prayer. He advises us to pray first, as soon as we feel the first tinge of a resentment. And this makes sense. Remember, if I try to do an inventory without bringing God into it, it's just psychology, and that doesn't work. And the big book tells us in the chapter, Freedom from Bondage, um, beautiful, on page 552, if you have a resentment you want to be free of, if you will pray for the person or the thing that you resent, you will be free. If you will ask in prayer for everything you want for yourself to be given to them, you will be free. Ask for their health, their prosperity, their happiness, and you will be free. Even when you don't really want it for them and your prayers are only words and you don't mean it, go ahead and do it anyway. Do it every day for two weeks and you will find you have come to mean it and to want it for them. And you will realize that where you used to feel bitterness and resentment and hatred, you now feel compassionate, understanding, and love. And it truly works. Okay, um, number six, we can go beyond prayer. Big Book says we ask God to show us how we can be helpful to the person we resent. That's a tall order, right? Not only am I supposed to forgive, I'm supposed to be helpful to them. We can do good to those who hurt us. Um, can we bring in the garbage cans of that neighbor whose dog messes up our rose bushes? And better yet, do it so the neighbor doesn't see us doing it. Um, my son, when he was a teenager, used to irk me. And I would make myself sometimes, if I was going out to get a latte, say, Daniel, would you like a latte also? Um, just to go and do something for someone that I was angry at. And it helped, it melts, it melts things. Um, the best example I can think of is from the movie. I think it was also a book called The End of, the End of a Spear, I think. Um, it was about some missionaries who went into Ecuador, into the wilds of the country to do what missionaries do. And as soon as they got off the plane, they were killed by the people there. What did their wives do? The wives found out that, you know, now these guys who killed their husband had polio and they went and they nursed them back to health. What a way to resolve resentment. Remember, um, in the chapter of the family afterwards on page 127, it says that if another person is cranky, you know, if they're apathetic, um, that can disappear if we show love and spiritual understanding. It just melts it. Number seven, we can forgive because God has forgiven us. We can think about what God has done for us. And this is a quote from um, Ray Steadman. Think of the thousand times a day God manifests his love and faithfulness to you. As you think of his love for you, a feeling of humble gratitude will spring up within you. As you experience gratitude to God for all he has done in your life, 
you will realize that the people around you need to be treated with love and patience, just as God has treated you. Since God has been so patient with you, how can you be critical and impatient toward others? God has patiently led you to a deeper understanding of his truth. He has waited for your lagging understanding and faltering faith to catch up. So, so now, how will we respond to others whose understanding and faith are just a bit beyond, behind ours? They may catch up and surpass us next week. What we are not to do. So the big book cautions me against harboring resentments. I always think that's such an interesting word, harbor. It reminds me, right, of a place where a ship can be safe in a storm. So how do I make myself a safe harbor for resentments? Because I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a place where anger and hate feel comfortable parking themselves. So number eight, we are not to review our resentments over and over in our minds or review them over and over with a hundred other people under the guise of getting help or asking people to pray for that poor spiritually sick person. When what we're really trying to do is get people to agree with our perception that the other person is really a louse. Um, we're building our harbor. The best thing is to tell one person and ideally someone who doesn't know the person we resent. Um, I, Generally, Melissa and I do our nightly reviews together, but sometimes if I have a resentment against someone who I know she knows, I'll go to my sponsor instead, who doesn't go to the meetings I do, and, and she travels in different circles, so I can keep that person's anonymity. Um, sometimes we call someone before we do a resentment inventory saying, I just need to vent. But I love what Tim Keller, one of my favorite spiritual authors, says. He says, if we're angry with someone, we don't need to vent, we need to repent. So before we call each other to talk about our lousy husbands, our rotten kids, our annoying bosses, um, we need to do our resentment inventories, pray and see our part. Number nine, we avoid retaliation and argument. So the big book makes it clear that avoiding retaliation is an essential ingredient in the cocktail of forgiveness. When someone wrongs us, there is an absolutely unavoidable sense that that person owes me, like they've incurred a debt. It's like if someone comes to my house and breaks a vase that costs $100, they owe me $100. Forgiveness is like me saying, don't worry about it. I'll replace the vase myself, even though you broke it. That's what forgiveness is. Um, we usually, though, want people to pay back the debt. And how do we do it? We hurt them back. We yell at them. We make them feel bad in some way. Or we just wait and watch and hope that something bad will happen with this attitude of God's got my back, so he'll get that person. Um, so what's forgiveness? I think forgiveness means giving up the right to seek repayment from the person who harmed us. It means we give up the right to revenge here or in the hereafter. Um, I said how my dad used to yell a lot. And so in recovery, I did my resentment inventory, still didn't go away. And, and I mean, my dad was a good guy. I know 
one time he yelled at my kids. And I'm like, dad, you can't yell at my kids. And he's like, I'm so sorry. And if, you know, or something like that. And if someone had ever told him like, you know, you really can't yell at your kid. Like he didn't know. He never had anyone model for him how to parent. Um, but anyway, I was having trouble forgiving and I realized I could still be nice to my dad, but I was expecting that when he died, God was going to show him what he did wrong and God was going to get him on my behalf. And so I said a prayer and I gave up that right. I said, God, when you judge my father, when he dies and meets you and whatever happens, anything he did to me, don't hold it against him. And I did it with my will because my emotions weren't there. But I have to tell you, my emotions caught up. And now the only time I think about anything bad my father did is if I'm trying to help another person. I remember the good things my father did. He worked two jobs to, you know, put me through college, to put me through law school. He was proud of me. Um, he, yeah, he, he, he was a good guy. He just, he didn't know you're not supposed to yell at your kids. Um, but again, his dad beat him. So he's a saint. Um, number 10, we ask God to help us show the same tolerance, pity, and patience we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. That's what the big book says. That means we don't express ourselves or vent in order to feel better. E. Stanley Jones tells of a woman who was very angry at her husband who said, I think I'd be well and free if I could just once tell my husband to go to hell. Well, his comment was, perhaps she would have been relieved momentarily, but the resentments would fill up again and be ready for another spillover. Expression is not the remedy. That's just dealing with a symptom instead of the disease. So what does it mean to have tolerance, pity, and patience, like the big book tells me to? Well, I love how Melissa defines tolerance. My own threshold to withstand pain or sorrow is raised. That means I stop being so easily offended by what other people do. And pity, the feeling of sorrow and compassion at the suffering and misfortunes of others. What would it look like to have compassion of others? Sometimes if I'm not feeling um, all loving towards someone, I'll ask God to help me to love them the way that he loves them and to see them the way that he sees them. Um, and patience, that just means I don't get to have my way. I just don't. Sometimes people may be unfair. That's just the way it is. Um, God removed me from the gutter of compulsive eating. No matter what else happens, I'm ahead. God's done enough for me. Um, people talk about forgiving themselves and they often ask, should I put myself on a resentment inventory? The big book is silent on it, but if we resent ourselves, it's because we've done something wrong. So we need to admit it, ask God to remove the defect and make amends, and then we're forgiven. I think it's awkward to do a resentment inventory on ourselves. Let me think of an example. Um, I resent myself because I overslept and I was late to work. Okay, so I say, well, what does that affect? 
I guess my pocketbook, if I may lose my job, what's my part? Well, my part is I I overslept and I was late to work, you know, I, so it's just like so awkward. So to me, it's um, what I generally do. If I'm like, if I say, oh crap, I can't believe I did something. It's like, well, what did I do? Like, oh, I was unkind. And then it's God, please forgive me for being unkind. Um, Please remove the defect and help me practice the opposite and then make whatever amends I need to. Um, Some people say they have more trouble forgiving themselves than forgiving others. um, And and they have trouble accepting God's forgiveness. But what really lies behind this idea of, I can't forgive myself. You know, we think it's like kind of noble, like, you know, oh, this means I really see how bad I am. I'm so humble. I can't forgive myself. No. Um, According to Tim Keller, when we say I can't forgive myself, it's really an indication of pride. Someone keeps going. It's really an indication of pride because we're in essence saying that our judgment is more accurate than God's judgment. When I say, I know God has forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. I'm acting as if my judgment holds more weight than God's because the big book is clear that anytime we're sorry for what we have done and have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, we are forgiven. That's all it takes, right? We look to see what we've done. We admit it to God, to ourselves, and to another person. We ask God to remove the defect. We make our amends, and then it's done. Done. So whenever I do this talk, I always like to close with what I think is the best story on forgiveness that I've ever read. Um, It's like Corey Ten Boom, who was imprisoned in a concentration camp for sheltering Jews during World War II. Um, So this is in her words. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their wraps, in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead light, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. 
Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. And now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How would he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your well lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day need to be forgiven, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It couldn't have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, God says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive yours. I knew it not only is a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. God help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And with that, I pass.